Good evening, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Usually on this program, we feature one or possibly two guests in the studio talking arts, politics, or current events. On this special episode of Profiles, we focus on a work of Indiana literature. This is the second in a four-part series celebrating Indiana's bicentennial. In the course of the year, the series will examine various facets of the Hoosier experience, including literature, land, and labor. Welcome to a special Profiles episode of the new literary series, Anthology. Anthology is a weekly gathering of classic and contemporary writing from voices that dare you to listen. On today's program, a visit to Bloomington in 1915, from A Hoosier Holiday by Theodore Dreiser. Born in Terre Haute, Dreiser attended Indiana University during the academic year of 1889 to 1890. Twenty-five years later, he returned for a tour of Indiana and published his reflections in a travel memoir. For Anthology, I'm Sarah Torbeck. And I'm your host, Heather Perry. Ask a Hoosier to name our most famous writer, and you'll probably get Kurt Vonnegut as an answer. But in his writing, Vonnegut is as merciless toward his Indiana roots as he is in satirizing the hypocrisies and failures of 20th century America as a whole. Writers born in Indiana generally fall into two camps. Those who celebrate the golden, bountiful countryside and the sentimental goodness of small-town folk. You might be thinking of the poet James Whitcomb Riley. And those who define themselves by leaving. Or by turning a lens of hard-eyed realism toward rural and small-town life, depicting it as toil-driven, unfulfilling, rigid, and stifling. Despite or because of this tension, American literature from the 1880s through the 1920s was dominated by Midwestern writers. They were perfectly situated to document the loss, and indeed the selling out, of the natural paradise that had been, or seemed to be, America, exploited by the dark engines of capitalist manufacturing. Two of Indiana's most celebrated novelists were exact contemporaries of this period, born around 1870 and dying in the mid-1940s, Booth Tarkington and Theodore Dreiser. Best known for the magnificent Ambersons, the Indianapolis-born Tarkington led a blessed life of privilege. Dreiser was born to a German Catholic family in Terre Haute as the ninth of ten surviving children. His father was a worker in a wool mill, and the family experienced periods of poverty and hardship. His novels are unflinchingly realistic, observing human nature without attempting to moralize it. Sister Carrie, published in 1900, shocked some readers with its blunt depiction of prostitution as a way to earn a living. An American Tragedy, from 1925, was based on a ripped-from-the-headlines criminal case. Dreiser spent most of his life in Chicago and New York but in 1915 he returned to Indiana for an extended visit around the state. The literary result of this visit was A Hoosier Holiday, a travel memoir that, unlike Dreiser's most characteristic work, views Midwestern life mostly through a scrim of fond reminiscence. 
You'll be hearing Dreiser's memories of his time as a student at Indiana University in the 1889 to 1890 academic year. He dropped out. He left Indiana with the help of an older brother, a musician who joined a traveling minstrel show and ended up in Chicago. The brother is known by his stage name, Paul Dresser. If you recognize that name, it's probably because Paul Dresser wrote one of the most famous songs about Indiana, On the Banks of the Wabash, Far Away. Published in 1897, it was one of the best-selling sheet music songs of the 19th century. It became the state song of Indiana in 1913. Variations on that beloved chestnut of Hoosier musicality might just pop up throughout today's program. You might also hear gentle reminders of Dreiser's class consciousness, along with some familiar names and campus landmarks. Phil Casper reads from A Hoosier Holiday by Theodore Dreiser. Bloomington, as we sped into it, did not seem much changed from the last time I had laid eyes upon it 25 years before. Only now, having seen the more picturesque country to the south of it, I did not think the region in which it lay seemed as broken and diversified as it did the year I first came to it. Then I had seen only the more or less level regions of northern and southern Indiana and the territory about Chicago, and so Bloomington had seemed quite remarkable physically. Now it seemed more or less tame, and in addition it had grown so in size and architectural pretentiousness as to have obliterated most of that rural inadequacy and backwoods charm which had been its most delightful characteristic to me in 1889. Then it was so poor and so very simple. The courthouse square had been a gem of moss-back simplicity and poverty, more attractive even, rurally speaking, than that courthouse which is the charm of Paoli. Here, also, the hitching rail had extended all around the square. I saw more tumble-down wagons, rheumatic and broken-down men, old, brown, almost moss-covered coats, and thin, bony, spavined horses in the Bloomington of 1889 than I ever saw anywhere before or since. In addition to this, in spite of the smallness of the college, Many of the 600 students had considerable money, for Indiana was a prosperous state, and these youths and girls were very well provided for. Secret or Greek letter societies and college social circles of different degrees of import abounded. There were college rakes and college loafers and college swells. At that time, the university chanced to have a faculty which, because of force and brains, was attracting considerable attention. David Starr Jordan, afterwards president of Leland Stanford, was president here. William Gifford Swain, afterwards president of Swarthmore, was professor of mathematics. Rufus L. Green, a man who made considerable stir in mathematics and astronomy in later years, was associate in the chair of mathematics. Jeremiah Jenks, a man who figured conspicuously in American sociological and political discussion in afterlife, and added considerable luster to the fame of Cornell, was occupying the chair of sociology and political economy. Edward Howard Griggs, a man who has carried culture with a large C into all the women's clubs and intellectual movements of one kind and another from ocean to ocean, was occupying an assistant professorship in literature. There was von Holst, called to the chair of history at the University of Chicago, and so on a quite interesting and scintillating galaxy of educative minds.
the student body, of which I was an unsatisfactory unit, seemed quite well aware of the character and import of the men above them, educationally. There was constant and great talk concerning the relative merits of each and every one. As Miss Fielding, my sponsor and mentor, had predicted, I learned more concerning the seeming import of education, the branches of knowledge and the avenues and vocations open to men and women in the intellectual world than I had ever dreamed existed. And just from hearing the students argue, apotheosize, anathematize, or apostrophize one course or one professor or another. Here, I met my first true radicals, young men who disagreed vigorously and at every point with the social scheme and dogma as they found it. Here, I found the smug conventionalists and grinds, seeking only to carve out the details of a profession and subsequently make a living. Here, I found the flirt, the college widow, and the youth with purely socializing tendencies who found in college life a means of gratifying an intense and almost chronic desire for dancing, dressing, spooning, living in a world of social airs and dreams. There were, oddly enough, hard and chronic religionists, even among the incoming class, who were bent upon preaching the kingdom of God is at hand to all the world. They seemed a little late to me, even at that day and date, though I was still not quite sure myself. Catholicism had almost made heaven and hell a reality to me. And here were attractive and intellectual women, the first I had ever seen, really, who in those parliamentary and social discussions incidental to student class and social life, as represented by professorial entertainments and receptions, could rise and discuss intelligently subjects which were still more or less nebulous to me. They gave me my first inkling of the third sex. Indeed, it was all so interesting, so new, so fascinating that I was set agape and remained so until the college year was over. I regained my health, which I had thought all but lost, and in addition began to realize that Perhaps there were certain things I might intelligently investigate over a period of years with profit to myself. I began to see that however unsuited certain forms of intellectual training and certain professions might be to me, they offered distinct and worthy means of employment to others. Though I had been roused at first, now I began to be troubled and unhappy. I felt distinctly that I had wasted a year or worse yet, had not been sufficiently well-equipped mentally to make the most of it. I began to be troubled over my future, and while I was not willing to accept my sponsor's kind offer and return the following year, I realize now that without some basic training it would do me no good. Still, I was not willing to admit to myself that I was intellectually hopeless. There must be some avenue of approach to the intellectual life for me, too, I said to myself. Only how to find it. I finally left unhappy, distraught, scarcely knowing which way to turn, but resolved to be something above a mere cog in a commercial machine. This proved really one of the most vitalizing years of my life. During my stay here, what novel sensations did I not experience? It was also different from the commercial life from which I had been extricated in Chicago. There, I had been rising at 5.30, eating an almost impossible breakfast, often the condition of my stomach would not permit me to eat at all, taking a slow, long-distance horse car to the business heart, 
working from seven to six with an hour for lunch and a crowded, foreman-bossed loft, and then taking the car home again to eat, and because I was always very tired, to go to bed almost at once. Only Saturday afternoons in summer, the Saturday half-holiday idea was then becoming known in America, and Sunday in winter offered sufficient time for me to recuperate and see a little of the world to make life somewhat endurable for me a situation which I greatly resented. It was most exasperating. In college, all that was changed. From the smoky, noisy city, I was transported once more to the really peaceful country where all was green and sweet, and where, owing to the peculiarly equable climate of this region, flowers bloomed until late December. The college curriculum necessitated my presence in class only from 9 until 12.30 or so, After that, I was free to study or do as I chose. Outside my window in this lovely old house where I had a room were flowers and vines and a grape arbor heavy with blue grapes and a stretch of grass that was like balm to my soul. The college campus, while it contained but a few humble and unattractive buildings, was so strewn with great trees and threaded through one corner of it where I entered by a stile with a crystal-clear brook that I was entranced. Many a morning on my way to class or at noon on my way out, I have thrown myself down by the side of this stream, stretched out my arms and rested, thinking of the difference between my state here and in Chicago. There I was so unhappy in the thing that I was doing. The Irish superintendent who was over my floor despised me, very rightly so, perhaps, and was at no pains to conceal it, threatening always to see that I was discharged at the end of the year. Our home life was now not so unpleasant, only I found no time to enjoy it. My work was too arduous. Here were no pots and kettles to pile in bins, No endless loads of tinware and woodenware to unpack out of straw or crates and store away, only to get them out again on orders. There I felt myself a pointless, unimportant bond slave. Here I was a free intellectual agent, to come or go as I chose. I could even attend classes or not, as I chose. Study was something I must do for myself or not. There was no one present to urge me on. Various youths, as I have said, at once gathered about me. Prospective lawyers, doctors, politicians, preachers, educators in embryo walked by my side or sat by me at the club boarding table, or dropped in between four and six of an afternoon or walked with me in the country, or played cards on Saturday afternoon or Sunday, or proposed an evening at church or at a debating society to discuss philosophy or read, or even call upon a girl. I was not very well equipped materially, but neither was I absolutely unpresentable, and aside from the various Greek letter and social fraternities, it did not make so much difference. I was never actually tapped for membership in one of these latter, and yet I was told afterwards that two different fraternities had been seriously divided over the question of my eligibility, another typical experience of mine. But I went out a great deal nevertheless, dreamed much, idled, rested, and if, at the end of the year, I was mentally disgruntled and unhappy, physically, I was very much improved. There could be no question of that, and my outlook and ambitions were better. You are listening to Profiles on WFIU. This week, 
we're listening to a special edition of the program focusing on Indiana literature. This is the second in a four-part series celebrating Indiana's bicentennial. We'll be back in a moment. We just heard Phil Casper read from Theodore Dreiser's 1915 reminiscence about the Indiana University he knew in 1890. This is Shane Lauder for Anthology. Before we hear more, Indiana University historian James Capshu is here to help us reminisce about the IU of 126 years ago. James Capshew is a Ph.D. in the History and Sociology of Science and teaches in IU's Departments of History and American Studies and in the School of Education. His research has included the history and culture of higher education. Jim, thanks for joining us. I'm grateful to be here. Now, some of the people <clears throat> that Dreiser names in the reading that we just heard are great figures, and we know their names today because their names are all over campus, on buildings. Can you talk a bit about those people? Well, one of the main people was the president of Indiana University in 1889, which was Davis Starr Jordan, who later on became the president of Stanford University. But Davis Starr Jordan was president in 1885. He replaced a string of ministers who were president of IU since 1829. And David Starr Jordan was really the person who brought Indiana University into the 20th century, even though a 19th century figure. And he was a very prominent educator even at that time. So he grew the faculty from homegrown talent. People like uh, William Lowe Bryan, uh, Joseph Swain, People like that uh, who were undergraduates who went away and came back and became leaders of Indiana University. The richness of the faculty that Dreiser encountered in 1889 and 1890 seems almost disproportionate to the size of the student body and the, the size of the campus. Can you speak to the other people who were also on faculty at that time? Yeah, there were several uh, people who, who were prominent in their fields. Um, Joseph Swain in mathematics. He was a subsequent president of Indiana University and also president of Swarthmore College. We had Rufus Green, who was also in mathematics and astronomy. Jeremiah Jenks, who was a sociologist and uh, political scientist, who later became famous at Cornell. He was in, in, at Indiana University. He also mentions Edward von Holtz, who was a visiting professor of history. He later became the chair of history at Chicago. One thing that uh, kind of surprised me, and yet wasn't surprising, was that in 1915, Dreiser had some expressions and reactions that we're still here today around Bloomington about how much the city had changed in 25 years since he had been at IU, how much new buildings there were, how, how different the feeling was in town. And he talked about feeling that IU had been wholly changed. Now, do you think he was exaggerating or what kind of changes had happened between 1889 and in 1915. A lot of changes happened in that 25-year period. We grew into the Duns Woods campus. 
the campus had been moved in 1885, and so they had two buildings, Owen and Wiley Hall, and then another frame building at that point called Maxwell Hall, then Mitchell Hall. So those, that was the campus in 1885. By the time Dreiser got here in 1889, the Maxwell Hall was being built, a giant, big limestone building, beautiful building. And that was the campus. That was a few buildings and a big woods that we see today. So in 25 years, by 1915, the campus had grown tremendously in terms of physical plant. The library, which now is Franklin Hall, anchors the Kirkwood entrance to the campus, the student building with the giant cock tower, Kirkwood Hall, Lindley Hall, Swain Hall, those were all built during that 25-year period. And so they created what we call now the Old Crescent, but basically a crescent of buildings around the campus. And the student body had grown too, of course. It probably was about 2,000 people. So it grew probably four or five times in that 25-year period. And that would have had a major impact on the economy of Bloomington, too. Absolutely. Bloomington was uh, still very dominated by students. It still is now. And they brought uh, intellectual vitality, money, and all kinds of interesting japes they might have as their students. And uh, one thing that Dreiser did comment that he noticed in Bloomington, so many new limestone buildings going up, such as a new post office that uh, we now know as the uh, Monroe County Health Department. And also they were building the new city hall, which we now know as the Ivy Tech John Waldron Arts Center. So, yes, Bloomington had changed a lot in that 25 years. Absolutely. It was becoming much more of a commercial center. Uh, We still relied on agriculture in the state, but Indiana became a very big manufacturing state also. The novelist Theodore Dreiser attended IU in the 1889-1890 academic year and revisited Bloomington 25 years later. Shane Lauder is talking with IU historian Jim Capshu about what Dreiser saw on his visit. Theodore Dreiser reminisces about being a poor student, sort of feeling not ready for the challenges of study. But what was college life like in 1889-1990? Why did people go to college? Well, there's always a lot of different reasons to go to college, but people wanted to get ahead, just like they do now. And my understanding was that Dreiser got a grant from a friend or a, a teacher for him to come to college. And he was noticing things, but he wasn't participating very much in the, the college life, really. And, you know, when you think about at that point, it was really rural. People didn't have cars in 1889. So people walked a lot or 
or uh, rode horses or carriages and things like that. And so when he came back, he's really also riding the wave of that early 20th century. Uh, the car culture was coming. He actually drove uh, from New York to Indiana during the Hoosier holiday uh, time. And so Bloomington participated in all those changes, uh, technological changes, commercial changes, economic changes. And I think by the 19-teens, going to college was a rite of passage. It was seen as not necessarily something to get a job. It's like finishing school for everybody, right? That that there's a way to sort of like meet other people and perhaps find a mate. Now, Dreiser mentions that he dropped out after one year, but he does name some friends, and one could be curious about how those students fared in their college careers, because they seem to be a bit more concentrated on studying and completing studies. Absolutely. I tried to look up all of the um, people he mentions, and only one person that I could find that actually graduated of those four or five uh, friends that he mentions But he has a really nice um, uh, memory of those folks about their, their ambitions and their interests. Is there anything else that struck you about Dreiser's reminiscence and, and your knowledge of the history of Bloomington and IU that uh, you'd like to share with us today? I do think that it's interesting to think about his time at Indiana as the beginning of what the university became David Starr Jordan really was the person who really started the university on the present course. And we look back at that time in the 1880s where we moved to Dunn's Woods, where we had a, um, a secular president, where we started having majors and electives and more science in the curriculum. And that really is the pattern of today. And he was part of that as a young student. Well, thank you for joining us today, Jim. We've been speaking with IU history professor James Capshew about the changes to IU and Bloomington around the turn of the 20th century, as seen by author Theodore Dreiser in his 1915 memoir, Hoosier Holiday. For Anthology, I'm Shane Lauder. You are listening to Profiles on WFIU. This week, we're listening to a special edition of the program focusing on Indiana literature. Theodore Dreiser's memories of Bloomington take a more personal turn as he recalls dating life in the last decade of the 19th century. His depiction of himself in college as cluelessly innocent takes on a more compelling psychological significance in the light of his later sexual behaviors. Dreiser progressed, if that's the word, to a series of infidelities, affairs, and obsessions with much younger women, including the teenage daughter of a colleague. Dreiser built his literary reputation on his controversial novel, Sister Carrie, published in 1900. It's the story of a country girl who finds her way in the urban settings of Chicago and New York, first as a mistress and then as a successful actress. The novel wasn't the sort of moral tragedy that had been popular throughout the 19th century. In the discreet language of his day, Dreiser was unflinchingly realistic about the trade-offs of sex, money, and power. It's a far cry from the sexual reticence Dreiser attributes to himself as a college student. 
but the narrator of A Hoosier Holiday does let slip one phrase that points toward the sophisticated artistic circles inhabited by the author as an adult. He notes that at college, he first met attractive and intellectual women who could rise and discuss intelligently subjects which were still more or less nebulous to me. They gave me my first inkling of the third sex. In the 1910s and 20s, the term third sex was used loosely to express urbane sexual bohemianism that flouted social conventions of gender. Although also used of gay men, women of the third sex were those who preferred work to marriage. For Dreiser, the third sex were women he regarded as equal to men in intellectual and artistic pursuits. A discovery he first made at Indiana University. Phil Casper continues with A Hoosier Holiday by Theodore Dreiser. It was during this winter that I experienced several of those early, and because I was young and very impressionable, somewhat memorable love affairs, which, however sharp the impression they made at the time, came to nothing. But one thing that is missing in the picture Owing to a very retiring and nervous disposition, I could never keep my countenance or find my tongue in the presence of the fair if a girl was pretty and in the least coquettish or self-conscious. I was at once stricken as with the palsy or left rigid and played over by chills and fever. Adjoining this house, in the cottage previously mentioned, was a young, tow-headed hoyden who no sooner saw that I was in this house as a guest than she plotted my discomfiture and unrest. It was my custom, because there was a space between two windows outside of which were flowers, to study in the east side of my room looking out on the lawn. In the cottage adjoining were several windows through which, on diverse occasions during the first and second week, I saw a girl looking at me, at first closing the shutters when she saw me looking, but later, finding me bashful, no doubt, and inclined to keep my eyes on my books, leaving them open and even singing or laughing in a ringing, disturbing way. On several occasions when our eyes met, she half smiled, or seemed to, but I was too terrified by the thought of a possible encounter on the strength of this to be able to continue my gaze, or to do what would seem the logical thing to most, to speak, or nod, or smile. Nevertheless, in spite of my inability to meet her overtures in the spirit in which they were made, she was apparently not discouraged. She continued to half-smile, to give me the shaking realization that some day soon I might have to talk to her, whether I would or not, and then where would I find words? One afternoon, as I was brooding over my Latin, attempting to unravel the mysteries of conjugations and modifications, I saw her come out of her back door and run across the lawn to the kitchen of the old widow lady who kept this house. I was not at all disturbed by this, only interested, and keenly so, even jealous of the pleasure the old lady was to have in the girl's company. She was exceedingly pretty, and by now there were other male students in the house, though not on my floor. I thought of her graceful body and bright hair and pink cheeks, but suddenly there was a knock at my door, and opening it, I encountered the feeble old lady who kept the place, very nervous and bashful herself, but smiling amusedly in a sly, senile way. 
The young lady next door wants to know if you won't help her with her Latin. There's something she can't quite understand, she said weakly. Actually, my blood ran cold. My hair writhed and rose, then wilted. I felt shooting pains in my arms and knees. Why, certainly, I managed to articulate, not knowing anything about Latin grammar, but being dizzard enough to imagine that any educational information was required on this occasion. I followed into the old-fashioned dining room with its table covered with a red cotton cloth, and there was the girl simpering and mock-shy, looking down after one appealing glance at me and wanting to know if I wouldn't please show her how to translate this sentence. We sat down in adjoining chairs. It was well, for my knees were rapidly giving way. I was dunce enough to look at her book instead of her, but at that her head came so close that her hair brushed my cheek. My tongue by then was swollen to nine times its normal proportions. Nevertheless, I managed to say something, God only knows what, my hands were shaking like leaves. She could not have failed to notice. Possibly she took pity on me, for she looked at me coyly, laughed off her alleged need, inquired if I was taking Latin, and wanted to know if I wasn't from Fort Wayne, Indiana. She knew a boy who had been here the year before who looked like me, and he was from Fort Wayne. With all these aids, I could do nothing. I couldn't talk. I couldn't think of a single blessed thing to say. It never occurred to me to tease her, or to tell her how pretty she looked, or frankly to confess that I knew nothing of Latin, but that I liked her, and to jest with her about love and boys. That was years beyond me. I was actually so helpless that in pity or disgust she finally exclaimed, Oh, well, I think I can get along now. I'm so much obliged to you, and then jumped up and ran away. I went back to my room to hide my head and to bemoan my cowardice and think over the things I should have said and done and the things I would do tomorrow or the next time I met her. But there never was any next time. She never troubled to look so teasingly out of her window. Thereafter, when she passed the house, she ran and seemed absorbed in something else. If, unavoidably, our eyes met, she nodded, but only in a neighborly way. And then, in a few days... William Wadhams appeared upon the scene, gallant roisterer that he was, and made short work of her. One glance, and there was a smile, a wave of the hand. The next afternoon, he was leaning over her fence, talking in the most gallant fashion. There was a gay chase a day or two later, in and out of bushes and around trees in an attempt to kiss her, but she got away, leaving a slipper behind her, which he captured and kept while he argued with her through her window. Later on, there were other meetings. She went on a drive with him somewhere one Sunday afternoon. In my chagrined presence, he discanted on having kissed her and on what a peach she was. It was a pathetic, discouraging situation for me, but the race is to the swift, the battle to the strong, and so I told myself at the time. I really did not resent his victory. I liked him too much, but I developed a kind of horror of my own cowardice a contempt for my ineptness, which in later years, year by year, finally built up a kind of courage. There was another girl, 15 or 16, across the street from me, the daughter of a doctor, living in a low, graceful, romantic cottage fronted by trees and flowers. 
she inspired me with an entirely different kind of passion. The first was heavily admixed with desire. The girl who approached me inspired it. In the second case, it was wholly sexless, something which sprang like a white flame at the sight of a delicate romantic face, and while it tortured me for years, never went beyond the utmost outposts of romance. Although later I often fell in love with others, still I could never quite get her out of my mind. And though she colored this whole year for me, desperately, I never even spoke to her. I first saw her coming home from school, a slim, delicate, tenuous type, her black hair smoothed back from her brow, her thin, slender white hands holding a few books, a long cape or Macintosh hung loosely about her shoulders, and I adored her at sight. The fictional representations of Dante's Beatrice are the only ones that have ever represented her to me. I looked after her day after day until finally she noticed me. Once she paused as she went into her home, her books under her arm, and picking a flower stood and held it to her face, glancing only once in my direction. Then she danced lightly up her steps and disappeared. At other times, as she would pass, she would glance at me furtively and then seem to hurry on. She seemed terrorized by my admiration. I did my best to screw up my courage to the point of being able to address her, and yet I never did. There were so many opportunities, too. Daily, she went to the post office or downtown for something or other. Nearly every afternoon, she came home along the same street, and most often alone. With some girls, or her sister, who was learning to play the violin, she went to church of a Wednesday and Sunday evening. I followed her and attended that church, or waited outside. Once in January, right after the Christmas holidays, there was a heavy snowfall and we had sleighing on this very street. She came out with her sled one Saturday morning and looked over at me where I was sitting by my window studying. I wanted to go forth and speak to her on this hill. There were so few there, but I was afraid. And she sledded alone. Then, as the year drifted towards spring, I wrote her a note. I composed 15 before I wrote this one, asking her if she would not come down to the campus style after she had put her books away, that I wanted to talk with her. It was a foolish note, quite an impossible proposition for a girl of her years. Frightening. All I had to say I could have said, falling in step with her at some point and beginning a friendly, innocent conversation. But I was too wrought up and too cowardly to be able to do the natural thing. After days of preliminary meditation, I finally met her in her accustomed path and handed her the paper. She took it with a frightened, averted glance. There was a look of actual fear in her eyes and hurried on. I went to the stile, but she did not come. I saw her afterward, but she turned away, not in opposition, I could see that, but in fright. That night, I saw her come to the window and look over at my window. But when she saw me looking, she quickly drew the blind. Thereafter, she would look irregularly, and one evening, after putting away her books, I saw her walk down to the stile. But now I was too frightened to follow. And so it went until the end of the second semester when, because of room changes and most of the crowd I was familiar with moving to the district immediately south of the college, I felt obliged to move also. Besides, by now I had given up in despair. 
I felt that she must feel and see that I was without vitality. And as for my opinion of myself, it is beyond description. I left, but often of an evening in the spring, I used to come and look at her windows, the lighted lamp inside communicating a pale luster to them. I was miserably, painfully unhappy and sad, but I never spoke. The very last day of my stay but one, in the evening, I went again, just to see. What better tribute could I pay to beauty and youth? Entering Bloomington this afternoon, the memories of all my old aches and pains were exceedingly dim. We say to ourselves at many particular times, I will never forget this, or the pain of this will endure forever. But, alas, even our most treasured pains and sufferings escape us. We are compelled to admit that the memory of that which rankled so is very dim. Marsh fires, all of us. We are made to glow by the heat and radiance of certain days, but we fade and we vanish. You're listening to Theodore Dreiser's account of his visit to Bloomington 25 years after he left IU in 1890. This special profiles edition of the new series, Anthology, will continue. As a Hoosier holiday continues, Theodore Dreiser has revisited the rooming house of his college days. Nevertheless, entering Bloomington now, it had some charm. Only as I thought the whole thing over, the memory of my various sex failures still rankled. I was not really happy here, I told myself. I was in too transient and inadequate a mood. And perhaps that was true. At any rate, I wanted to see this one principal room I have previously mentioned, and the college and the courthouse, and feel the general atmosphere of the place. As a whole, the town was greatly changed, but not enough to make it utterly different. One could still see the old town in the new. For although the old ramshackle, picturesque, attractive courthouse had been substituted by a much larger and more imposing building of red brick and white stone, a not uninteresting design, Still, a number of the buildings which had formerly surrounded it were here. The former small and by no means cleanly post office, with its dingy paper and knife-marked writing shelf on one side, had been replaced by a handsome government building suitable for a town of 30 or 40,000. A new city hall, a thing unthought of in my day, was being erected in a street just south of the square. 
New bank buildings, dry goods stores, drug stores, restaurants were all in evidence. In my time, there had been but two restaurants, both small and one almost impossible. Now there were four or five quite respectable ones and one of considerable pretensions. In addition, down the main street could be seen the college or university, a striking group of buildings entirely different from those I had known. A picture postcard referring to one of the buildings spoke of 5,000 population for the city and a 4,000 attendance for the university. Feeling that too much had disappeared to make our stop of any particular import, still I was eager to see what had become of the old rooming house, and whether the little cottage next door and the home of Beatrice over the way were still in existence. Under my guidance, we turned at the exact corner and stopped the car at the curb. I was by no means uncertain, for on the corner diagonal from my old room was a quondam student's rooming house too obviously the same to be mistaken. But where was the one in which I had lived? Apparently it was gone. There was an old house on the corner looking somewhat like it, and the second from it on the same side was evidently the small house in which Miss T had lived. And over the way, yes, save for another house crowded beside it, that was the same too. Only in the case of this house on the corner, all at once it came to me. I could see what had been done. Willie, I said to a boy who was playing marbles with two other boys right in front of us, how long has this second house been here? This one next to the corner. I don't know. I've only been here since Booster Day. Booster Day? I queried, suddenly and entirely diverted by this curious comment. What in the world is Booster Day? Booster Day! He stared incredulously as though he had not quite heard. Ah, go on. You know what Booster Day is? I give you my solemn word, I replied very seriously. I don't. I never heard of it before. Believe it or not, I never did. I don't live anywhere around here, you know. Hey, Tozer, he called to another boy who was up in a tree in front of the house, and who, up to this moment, had been keeping another youth from coming near by striking at him with a stick. Here's a feller says he never heard of Booster Day. Ah, <laughs> ha! It's the truth, I persisted. I'm perfectly serious. You think I'm teasing you, but I'm not. I never heard of it. Where'd you live, then? he asked. New York, I replied. City? Yes. Did you come out here in that car? Yes. And they ain't got a booster day in New York? I never heard of one before. Well, we have one here. Well, when does it come then? I asked, hoping to get at it in that way. In summertime, he replied, smiling. Now, about August. No, don't, commented the boy in the tree. It comes in the spring. I know, because we were still in the school yet last year, and they let us out that day. Well, what month was it in then, I went on. April? May? June? May, I think, said the boy in the tree. I know we were still in school, anyhow. Well, what did they do on Booster Day? I inquired of the boy on the ground. Well, he said, kicking the bricks with his toes, they now send up balloons and shoot off firecrackers and have a parade, and someone goes up in a flying machine, at least he did last year. Yes, what for, though, I inquired. Because it's booster day, he insisted. But don't you see that isn't an answer, I pleaded. I want to know what booster day is for. I know, called the boy in the tree gallantly. He had evidently been turning this problem over in his own mind and now came to the other's rescue. It's the day all the stores advertise to get people to come into town. It's to boost the town. Well, now, there you have it, 
I said to the first boy. Booster day is the day you boost the town, advertising day. You think it's always been, and yet you don't even know what day it comes on. I'll bet you haven't had such a day out here for more than ten years. I said to another boy, drawn near, and who was standing by open-mouthed, Where do you live? In there, he pointed, indicating my old study. We keep boarders. Then you can tell me, maybe, did that house always have a porch? No, sir. They put that one on two years ago. And was it always on the corner? No, sir. They moved it over when they built this house in here. I know, cause now we lived down there before we moved up here, and I seen him do it. That settles it, I said cheerfully. Do you suppose your mother would let me go in and look at that corner room? My mother's away to the country. It's only my sister's at home. But you can come in. The room ain't rented now. He marched briskly up the steps and opened the door. It was quite the same, save for a new, smooth hardwood floor and the porch. The window where I always sat commanded no view of any lawn, but looking across the way and at the house diagonally opposite, I could get it all back. And it touched me in a way, like the dim, far-off echo or suggestion of something, a sound, an odor, one could scarcely say what. At best, it was not cheerful, a slight pain in it, and I was glad to leave. Once outside, I sat under the wide-spreading elms waiting for Franklin to finish his sketch and thinking of old days. Over there, in the house diagonally opposite, on the second floor, had lived Thompson the Vane in his delightfully furnished room. I always thought of him as Vane, even in school. He was so tall, so superior, with a slight curl to his fine lips, with good clothes, a burning interest in football and hockey, and money, apparently, to gratify his every whim. He had a kindly, curious, and yet supercilious interest in me, and occasionally stopped in to stare at me, apparently, and ask casually after my work. And around the corner of the next block, in a large square house, but poorly provided with trees, lived one of the most interesting of the few who took an interest in me at the time. I could write a long and exhaustive character study of this youth, but it would be of no great import here. He was a kind of fox or wolf in his way, with an urbane and enticing way of showing his teeth and a smile which quite disarmed my opposition and interested me in him. He was a card sharp and as much a gambler as any young boy may be. He drank, too, though rarely to excess. All the mechanistic, religious, and moral propaganda of the college intended to keep the young straight were to him a laughing matter. He was his own boss and instructor. Evidently, his family had some money, for they seemed to provide for him freely. Once he came to me with the proposal that we take two girls, both of whom he knew and to whom he seemed perfectly willing to recommend me in the most ardent fashion, to Louisville over a certain holiday. Washington's birthday, I think. He to arrange all details and expenses. At first, I refused. But after listening to him, I was persuaded and agreed to go. The result, as I feared, proved decidedly disastrous to my vanity. His girl, whom he took me to see, was petite, dark, attractive, by no means shy or inexperienced. And at her house, I was introduced to a plump, seductive blonde of about 17, who was quite ready for any adventure. She had been told about me, 
almost persuaded against her will, I fancy, to like me. But I had no time. I could not talk to her. I was afraid of her. Still, by reason of a superhuman effort on my part to seem at ease and not dull, I got through this evening. How, I don't know. At any rate, I had not alienated her completely. The following Sunday we went, and had I had the least sang fa or presence, I might then and there have been instructed in all the mysteries of love. This girl was out for an adventure. She was jealous of the attention showered upon her friend by W. Secretly, I think she admired him, only in this instance loyalty to her friend and indifference on his part made any expression of it a little difficult. I was a poor substitute, a lay figure, of which she was perfectly willing to make use. On the way on the train, we sat in the same seat and I took her hand. A little later, I gallantly compelled myself to slip my arm around her waist, though it was almost with fear and trembling. I could not think of any witty, interesting things to say, and I was deadly conscious of the fact. So I struggled along, torturing myself all the way with thoughts of my inadequacy. Arrived at Louisville, we walked about to see the sights. There had been a great tornado a few days before, and the tremendous damage was still very much in evidence. Then we went to the principal hotel for dinner. My friend, with an effrontery which to me passed over into the realm of the unbelievable, registered for the four of us, taking two rooms. I never even saw the form of registration. Then we went up, and my girl companion, having by now concluded that I was a stick, went into the room with a W, and his sweetheart had retired. W came to my room for me, and we went down to dinner. He even urged more boldness on my part. After dinner, which passed heavily enough for me, for I was conscious of failure, we had five hours before our train should be due to return. That time was spent in part by myself and this girl idling in the general parlors because W and his mate had mysteriously disappeared. Then, after an hour or more, they sought us out and suggested a drive. Since we had brought bags, we had to return to the hotel to get them and pay the bill. There were still three quarters of an hour. After perfecting her toilet in the room belonging to my friend, my girl came downstairs to the parlor and, a half hour later, just in time to make the train, W and his charmer appeared. The day was done, the opportunity gone. As in the previous cases, I heaped mounds of obloquy upon my head. I told myself over and over that never again would I venture to make overtures to any woman, that it would be useless. I am doomed to failure. I said. No girl will ever look at me. I am a fool, a dunce, homely, pathetic, inadequate. Back in Bloomington, I parted from them in a black despair, concealing my chagrin under a mask of pseudo-gaiety. But when I was alone, I could have cried. I never saw that maiden anymore. Afterwards, W. took me to see his girl again. He had no feeling of disappointment in me, apparently, or rather he was careful to conceal it. He seemed to like me quite as much as ever, but he proposed no more outings of that kind. 
and there were C.C. Hall, who lived in a small bedroom over me, and used to insist, for policy's sake, I fancy, that he thought better in a small room and that too much heat was not very healthy, and short Bill Hoey, expert on the violin and a seeker after knowledge in connection with politics and taxation, Arthur Pendleton, solemn delver into the intricacies of the law, Russell Ratliff, embryo metaphysician and stoic, a long company. I can see them now, all life before them. The old, including men and women, merely so much baggage to be cleared away. Their careers, their loves, their hopes, all that was important in life. And life then felt so fresh and good, so inviting. After this came the university, wholly changed but far more attractive than it had been in my day. A really beautiful school. I could find only a few things— Wiley Hall, the brook, a portion of some building which had formerly been our library, had been so added to that it was scarcely recognizable. I ran back in memory to all those whom I had known here. The young men, the women, the professors. Where were they all? Suddenly, I felt dreadfully lonely, as though I'd been shipwrecked on a desert island. Not a soul did I know any more of all those who had been here. Scarcely one could I definitely place. What is life that it can thus obliterate itself, I asked myself. If a whole realm of interests and emotions can thus definitely pass, what is anything? We sped north in the gathering dusk, and I was glad to go. It was as though I had been to see something that I had better not have seen. A house that is tenantless, a garden that is broken down and ravished and run to weeds and wild vines, naked and open to the moon. A place of which people say in whispers that it is haunted. Yes, this whole region was haunted for me. You've been listening to a special episode of the new literary series... Anthology for the Indiana Bicentennial on Profiles. Our reader was Phil Casper. Music for the episode comes from the album Midwest by Matthias Eich, with variations on the song On the Banks of the Wabash performed by the Kings of Dixieland, the Shannon Quartet, and Michael Madden on the ukulele. Anthology is produced, written, and edited by Cynthia Wolfe. Join Anthology next week at its regular time, Sunday at 1, for our premiere episode, To End is to Begin, featuring classic short fiction by Sherwood Anderson and Juna Barnes, and poems on writing and exploring the borders of the self. For Anthology, this is Heather Perry. Thanks for listening. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. This program was funded in part by a grant from the Indiana Humanities. Special thanks to Jim Capshu, Shane Lauder, and to Cynthia Wolfe and her team.
please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.